The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast, and this episode is episode number 209. It's the beginning of our fifth year of weekly podcasts. Now, when a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can definitely be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the spiritual, mental, and physical aspects of addiction with an evidence-based, holistic, drug-free, proven step-by-step program to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. It's an anonymous call. They can help you. Today, we are going to interview sort of the second half of the couple that we met on Super Bowl Sunday at the Sober AF Entertainment Party in Tampa. We did an interview last week, you may have heard it, with Katie Sullivan, who while having her own history of addiction, she worked under President Trump's administration in the area of policy. So today's interview is with um, a gentleman named Art Kleinschmidt, kind of the other half of that relationship. And Art served as senior advisor on substance abuse to the assistant secretary for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He is also the former deputy director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. In other words, he was a deputy drug czar appointed by President Trump. He has his own history of addiction. He is a P, he has a PhD. He is certified in trauma treatment. He's a licensed professional counselor, counselor, licensed addiction counselor, and licensed drug and alcohol counselor. Without further ado, let's talk to Art Kleinschmidt. Dr. Art Kleinschmidt. Thank you, you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for telling me that going forward, I can just call you Art. <laughs> yeah. So how, tell us about your drug or alcohol history. How did you get started on drugs? How old were you? Uh, well, I started with booze. Uh, when my parents would go out at night, they actually had a bar and then we'd have people over and uh, started drinking. I probably was in, uh, say, the eighth or uh, so grade, maybe a, a, a little bit younger than that, uh, started using and then sort of uh, the marijuana. My old man was like a very staunch uh, guy. Uh, and I didn't like uh, anybody trying to uh, sort of control or manage me. So I always kind of sought out uh, my, my own sort of independence. And I guess like with a lot of kids, uh, one of the ways you kind of get independence is sometimes through like substance use, substance abuse. And uh, so I, 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 it was kind of rough a little bit growing up for me, but uh, you know, like sometimes I would take home a report card with all F's when I was like in uh, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. Uh, and and then I uh, started uh, hanging around in the neighborhood. I don't know if you want to know some of my story, but sure. I, I'm from the uh, which neighborhood? I, Where are we talking about? Art? Where did you grow up? Uh, 
Well, I grew up in Algiers, which is a section of New Orleans. And then uh, I went to school there, but then they sent me to Catholic school, which uh, didn't meld with, uh, with too well. I mean, I still a Catholic, but um, back when I was going to school, they could hit the kids and sh stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, so I would kind of rebel against that. Uh, and then like, my New Orleans neighborhood, they was like, uh, this was like in the 80s, they had a, uh, it was the Funland days. I, I, I uh, there was an arcade that that was called Funland. So if you wanted to be like a little uh, juvenile delinquent, that was that was the perfect little sort of crime school. So like, if you wanted to buy drugs, you could go there and buy drugs. If you wanted to find somebody that can help you break in cars or steal stuff, they would be there. And then the people who ran the Funland were actually a fence for stolen merchandise. Oh. So you could, uh, yeah, if you stole it, clean the body out, you could, uh, you could, you could shuck it right there and then buy whatever you wanted there. Uh, around that time, you know, quaaludes, acid, that kind of stuff was very popular. And did you do all of that? I, I did all of that. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got, uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was like, a, looking back at it, it was kind of sometimes like it was crazy sort of fun times, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty nuts. I mean, like, uh, you know, you could kind of get in little fights and that, and then you could kind of, uh, you know, little juvenile delinquent type of, uh, crimes with everything. Got it. Did your parents know about your activities? Well, well they got clued in because, uh, uh, I mean, I did like, um, I'll tell you some weird story that just occurred to me. Like, um, one time I was out late at night, uh, I was still probably a juvenile. I used to sneak out of the house at night. Uh, and then I was <laughs> with my buddies, we were breaking into cars. And for some reason, I didn't even know what I was doing. But like, I ended up with some equipment. This was like in the 80s. And they had the car phone and all that stuff. And so like, uh, I had this stuff that I was, you could tell it was just totally ripped out of somebody's car. Uh, and then I, I remember, uh, I don't know why I was thinking this, uh, and I went to stash it and I stashed it in my old man's bathroom. So like, <laughs> I wasn't thinking right. I mean, like the next day, like he's calling me down when he found it. And it's like, you know, and he's questioning me about all this sort of merchandise and how I got there. And of course, I'm like, well, I don't know. And he would say, well, think. And I'm like, okay, I pretend like I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I just don't know where that came from. But uh, and there, there were other other things like that. That's like a good I said, story, though. I like that story. How old were you oh, when you did this? Uh, I was in high school, okay. so I don't. Uh, some of that is kind of a blur. I did. I, I uh, originally failed ninth grade, uh, and then when I, I the first when I failed ninth grade, I used to have to. I, I went to a place called Jesuit High School. It was very strict. You had to wear like khakis, and then you had to wear these hard black shoes, and you had the name tag. Well. Uh, that was really hard for me to uh, sort of abide by. And I remember, and I looked up this kid that I used to hang with back then. We used to go to the local supermarket and you had, to, you had these school bags. They were um, like a vinyl, you know, like a carrot. But if you left it uh, sort of half and zipped, it was still sort of closed. So you could take like candy and you could slide it into the, uh, the unzipped portion and you can kind of go and sell it uh, for cheap. And then, so we do that and buy weed. And I, I remember, like, so this was like in ninth grade, uh, I skipped, I left school uh, with this kid to do that kind of stuff. And then we stole, they fixed it. I don't know if I should tell all my, punch of my story. <laughs> tell, but... tell whatever you feel comfortable with. I don't want to put you okay, on the well, spot. I, I, this is one thing. Okay. So we stole all this Pam cooking spray. 
It used to be like back in the early 80s that if you spray, spray Pam into a, a plastic bag uh, in Huppet, you would get like a total like ringing. Okay. So I remember like he and I stole a bunch of all that stuff and we were spraying it in these hefty bags that we stole too. And then we passed out um, uh, in the middle of the neutral ground on like busy street. That was like at Carrollton and Canal, uh, which is pretty busy in New Orleans. And then some, some spect people started honking, whatever. And then I remember kind of waking up and it's these two young Japanese school kids in their Jesuit uniforms. So that's one thing. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then it kind of got progressive from there because uh, the disease of addiction kind of progresses. So. Right. That, that's some of my early stuff. So, so at what point in your history of addiction did you, you know, we call the podcast point of no return. Like when was your wake up call? When did you finally go yeah, I can't do this anymore. What, how did that happen for you? Kind of accident. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I, uh, grace of God, I stayed sober. It wasn't my intention. I, I could tell you like, uh, uh, the episode that sort of drove it, but like, so that was back in the, uh, early eighties, what I was just talking about. Right. So if you, and I kept using the whole time, I mean, I, I met with certain sort of success in my life, some, uh, I passed the CPA exam, and which is a whole nother story, but uh, I passed the CPA exam, which is actually sort of tough, but um, Mo Man died in 98. Uh, um, uh, so Anyway, so it would have been sort of like the mid to the late uh, 90s. Uh, and I, I know now, uh, at the time I didn't know, but um, uh, I know now, um, that's when all of a sudden these pain, uh, fraudulent pain management clinics popped up all over the city. Right. You probably saw some of that, but uh, it, it was the wild, wild west with these pain management clinics. Yep. Uh, and then, um, so like in how they used to do it, they used to call it 90, 90, and 90. So you would get 90 of the pain medicine you liked. You'd get 90, whether you like Xanax or Valium better, you could pick it. And then you get 90 of this very powerful muscle relaxant called Soma or Crispidol. So, uh, so that'd be, and so if you want me just to fast forward from those days, which I can always describe, but uh, it was like, it was New Year's Eve. Uh, I didn't eat anything because I wasn't eating much back in the day. I was kind of emaciated. And they used to like in New Orleans, they have drive through daiquiri shops. Uh, I know they sort of people sometimes I didn't think that was weird. Some people think that's weird. I've never heard but, of a uh, drive through daiquiri shop. I'm just saying. So that's kind of new to me. Okay. Okay, but yeah, they had that. So, but there was this other daiquiri shop and they had these really powerful uh, Long Island iced tea daiquiris and I would drink multiple of them a day, you know, like four or five bucks. So that was your nutrition. Day. You got a little fruit juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was like, it was New Year's Eve. My buddy, whatever, he wanted to go get some ecstasy. So I said, okay. So I, w I went into the place and they didn't have any. They only had the soma. So I bought like a whole bunch of those. <laughs> So I, uh, I was going to go to my mom. She was going to put steaks on. And I had, at the time, my niece was young or whatever. And then my friend didn't want to do anything. He thought I was not. So I took like a big handful of them. I took over probably about 10 of them. Uh, and then washed them down with my daiquiri. And so I went into my mom's house uh, uh, for, for the little New Year's festivities. And I went to shoot with my... Uh, you know the bottle rockets uh and then i remember like i felt like this so i didn't even get high off the next thing you know i like just hit the dirt uh and then i was kind of like doing some kind of convulsing type of stuff my friend got scared so he ran off uh and so then eventually my my whatever i was able my uh mom and them put me in the, um 
a bed. So then it was like, okay, so I kind of came through. And then like when all the fireworks were going off around midnight, uh, I kind of woke up. And then so I was like, oh, wow, I'm in my sister's room. Uh, so then I, I reached down my pocket and I had still another handful of the soma. So I took them. Uh, and then I went down to say, hey, I'm cool now. That was just a little whatever it is. Uh, and then next thing you know, I, I, I did the whole episode all over oh, again. Gosh. And then so it was a couple of days later. Uh, that was New Year's. Uh, maybe the next day, LSU was playing in the Sugar Bowl. So my mom was like, oh, come over. We have whatever for uh, the LSU game. And then they they turned it off. They did like uh, intervention. And then I ended up going up to Minnesota to get clean and sober. Okay. What kind of that a was program my, was in Minnesota? Well, uh, well, uh, I went to Hazelden. Okay. Uh, and then from Hazelden, I, I, I lived in the uh, recovery community. St. Paul, Minnesota has a real big recovery community. I lived in like two different uh I, they call them recovery houses. We call them sober houses. Right. But I, and I ended up uh, at an Oxford house. Okay. Uh, I mean, there was a little bit of drama in there. I mean, I got booted out of one. Uh, I had to live in like a crack motel. But I I, uh, uh, I stayed sober and then whatever, Oxford, uh, uh, I was able to get into an Oxford. And then from there, I, I, that was probably, you know, I, I actually look at that level of care, that recovery house, uh, sober house, uh, out of treatment as one of the most um, profound sort of recovery uh, aspects okay. to, in, in my or, or along the continuum where like a lot of the big changes sort of occur. Okay. And have you been sober since then? Yeah, I got, I got sober uh, January 4, uh, 2002. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohi.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So like the, I, I got sober during the uh, the crazy pill mill uh, sort of rage. And at the time, I, I could, it was crazy. I could, uh, I, I could tell you about it, but um, 
at the time, I just thought, because I was living in New Orleans, <laughs> I kept waiting for these places to get raided. They only took cash. Right. Uh, you, you know, and, and, and then I, for the longest time, I thought that was just regular New Orleans yep. corruption, yep. you know, uh, it turns out that it was yep. actually federal policy that was behind it. Yep. So. Well, well done. You've been sober 19 years. Uh, I, I have. Yes. That's awesome. Grace of God, yes. Sober 19 totally years, awesome. Yes. So I was a big AA guy and everything else. So, there you yes. go. So you got clean and sober. And then w- what happened to your life after that? Where did you go from there? Cause you're like a PhD. You, you, and you're not a CPA. But, um, yeah, right, right, right. So I, I stayed in uh, uh, St. Paul. Uh, I, I did this thing like, you know, they talk a lot about peers, but before like peers were a thing, I actually was doing this sort of service work and I, I, I felt dumb about it, uh, but I, I got myself into it. I, I would go like, I think it was every Thursday morning, uh, the halfway house I went to, uh, they would get their new admits. So it would be like my volunteer job was to show up early in the morning get the new admits, uh, they'd give me a bus pass. And then like, they would make everybody like a, a bag lunch, uh, get my bus pass to bag lunch and take all the new admits on the St. Paul city bus. Uh, and then show them around the city off of that, bring them to like the, the Minnesota job fair a thing to fill out applications, bring them something somewhere else, bring them over to the, uh, AA inner group and then bring them. So I did that for like, uh, over a year. And I, I uh, um, you know, I felt like a tool about it, but I, I got to say, I I, uh, I think that kind of work actually helped me stay sober. Uh, and then from there, Hazelden has like a graduate school. <laughs> they, they don't have like, they have a graduate school uh, where I, I went uh, and I studied uh, addiction counseling. Like I, I had like a, a an MBA and a CPA and that sort of a thing, but I hadn't worked in a number of years. Uh, I was just carousing around New Orleans, but uh, so I went back to um, uh, graduate school and then I uh, became like a counselor and then I started working at like a, an adolescent prison correctional facility was my first job. I did my training, my clinical work at Hazelden on the units. I worked with adolescents and uh, that sort of a thing. So, uh, and then from that uh, adolescent prison, I was recruited to come work at a, uh, a long-term uh, treatment facility for like hardcore relapse people in uh, Colorado. Uh, Is that where so you met I, Katie? I, that's where I met Katie. Okay. Exactly. I met her in that treatment center, by the oh, way, okay. it's kind of, I, I sent her a letter uh, was actually how I, we first sort of communicated, oh. but uh, uh, so she came up to me uh, at that treatment center because they had, I was a clinician there, but uh, they wanted me to tell my whole AA story uh, there at their big speaker meeting. So then she came up to me after I told my story. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah. so you then were working at this facility in Colorado. Right. Yeah, it was very rural, so it's way up in the mountains. So I had to do my I had to do my PhD remotely. Okay. I, so I did the PhD while I was working full time. I mean, I worked at a couple different sort of places back and forth. So I worked at uh, different levels of care with different populations. So okay. But they work with, I mean, from a clinical perspective. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And then how did you then end up in, did you go directly from there to Washington, D.C.? Is that kind of how you progressed or was there something in the interim? No, I, I went uh, right right from Washington, D.C. I uh, was, uh, I could tell you the guy who hooked me up was Joe Grogan. Okay. Uh, he was working with uh, the president and he was making opioids a big thing. So he was talking to me. 
uh, and then I, um, it was weird. I never thought I would work in the government. I, I, you know, I was just filling them in the stuff that I know from both a treatment and a using perspective or, or a guy even in recovery, he worked in the recovery. Um, and then it was like, okay, my wife said, well, Joe wants your resume. And I, I didn't think much of it. Okay, sure. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I, I remember it was like, uh, I don't know, weeks, a month later, I didn't even remember about it. I got some weird looking emails like White House uh, uh, liaison or something correspondence. And I thought it was junk. And I was almost going to delete it. And it was like some, some kind of, I told my wife, hey, look, some kind of White House sort of thing is coming through. And I thought, kind of grabbed the phone from me and said, no, that's them. I really mean that's them. I called the number and it was them. So I had to go. So I, I just, like hit the lottery and got lucky uh, with this. And uh, uh, I was very proud to come out and serve the president. And I, I, I started off at SAMHSA as a senior advisor. By the time I left, I was the deputy uh, director at the uh, White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. So I went from senior advisor at SAMHSA. And then I worked in the Domestic Policy Council as well. You know, I think it's actually huge that someone with your background, you know, would be called up to work, you know, in policy at that level, because I think that so often, you know, we end up with um, clinicians who don't really have full on reality of what it is to A, be addicted, and then B, be sober, and C, have worked with people who are addicted. So I think that's huge. What did you, what did you like about being in D.C.? Well, I like the, the fact that I was actually, uh, I mean, it, I mean I, when, I, when I first walked into D.C., I was like, I, I had like a lot of content knowledge, but then you got to learn, okay, now how does it work in the federal government? Right. Uh, uh, I think, you know, figuring all that out and some of the works, I feel like I had uh, uh, quite a bit of accomplishments, but I, I think I liked uh, sort of being your hands on the policies, molding things going forward for the uh for the good of the country and doing your best that way, taking, you know, your insights, your knowledge and that and trying to produce something that would sort of help the average American citizen. I think I kind of really like that. I think that's, I think that's fabulous. I think that's huge. So I know, I know you don't necessarily have a, a an exact job that you're going to move into, but would you like to continue with um, being at that level and being able to do uh, drug policy more, or would you like to go back and work with addicts? Uh, uh, Putting you on the spot. I can, kind of, I can kind of go sort of both ways. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm uh, talking to some people around the policy realm, and what, what I'm trying to do uh, when I talk to people, if you look at it, uh, now there's a number of reasons for it. I actually know what the biggest reason is, but um, when you look at people, if you look at just the data that SAMHSA's big uh, uh, survey they put out, I used to work at SAMHSA, uh, uh, of the 20 million Americans who have like a substance use disorder, 89% of them don't get treatment, right? Uh-huh. So I'm working and I'm talking with some people. Uh, and right now we're talking, we're meeting other minds, we're trying to put something together. But how I ultimately want to do this uh, and how I've been thinking about it is a, trying to create more of a better intervention strategy to where people actually get from point A to point B, okay. uh, getting from active addiction into sort of treatment into recovery. 
So like closing, narrowing that gap. And it could be, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the homeless communities and uh, on the West Coast or up there in Kensington, Philadelphia. I haven't gotten a chance to tour those yet, but I've been wanting to. But that's that's actually where I would sort of see how do you actually kind of close and narrow that gap and uh, move people from point A to point B. I so. think that's great. I think that's great. Art, if if you could just, we feel that uh, a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are friends and family of addicts and, you know, maybe kind of don't know what to do or where to go. If you just had one message to give them, what would it be? Well, a lot of times I would tell people, uh, you know, in my traditional sign off, but keep the faith. Uh, mm-hmm. So with your loved one, keep the faith. That's uh, I, I just kind of... Uh, you know, sort of keep the faith. And then sometimes, I, you know, when I have to talk to them, you know, I would kind of sometimes teach them a little bit uh, the difference between enabling and helping and that sort of a thing, you know. Uh, enabling uh, behaviors is more like, I had like a rule of thumb. If you're doing for the person what he should be doing for himself uh, and he's not because he's using, then you're sort of enabling the disease. You're not helping the guy. But if you're helping as far as... Uh, putting down the groundwork, like maybe the first couple of rents in a uh, sober recovery house, or if you're helping somebody to start actually taking responsibility for their lives, uh, I, I think you're actually sort of helping. And I, you know, I would sometimes boil that down into the exact uh, dynamics of a particular case. But I, I would always say, start, you know, like keep the faith. I mean, miracles do happen. Yep. And this is in recovery in and of itself is a miracle. So we are going to be moving in that direction. I think that's great. And I think that's a great rule of thumb that if you're doing something for the person that they should be doing for themselves, chances are you're just enabling them. Yeah, right. And the light bill because he's buying, spending this money on crack cocaine. Yep. You're not helping the yep. guy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, people can refute that, but I, I, you're not. No, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's good <laughs> advice. Art, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story and, I'm super excited that you got to do what you did in Washington. And I know that you, as well as Katie, I know you guys are going to help to make a difference in this whole addiction pandemic. And, you know, that's, that's huge. So thank you so much. Well, appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for, for having that kind of faith. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. You know, I want to reiterate whether you are a Trump supporter or whether you are a supporter of President Biden, this subject of addiction is nonpartisan, it's nonpolitical, it's non-religious. We don't push any political agenda. We just want solutions to the problem. Um, Katie happened to work for President Trump. We know that he did have um, some good viewpoints about addiction. I am assuming that President Biden does as well. So thank you so much for listening. And if you have a loved one that needs treatment or if you yourself need treatment, please don't wait. Please don't wait for something to happen. Just get help now. And we will talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening. I specifically loved Art's whole story, Dr. Kleinschmidt's story about his own addiction. You know, we had an interview with the pharmacist and he talked about the pill mills in the New Orleans area. And obviously Art 
was very familiar with that. And now here is someone who, in spite of his own history with addiction, you know, went on to work for the administration in Washington, D.C. And I feel that whatever he does going forward is going to be helpful to this whole addiction pandemic. And that's what we want is we want to tell you that there's help available, that there are people working on this whole area. And also that for you personally, there is hope out there. There are so many different programs and so many different organizations that simply want to help you or your loved one get clean and sober. So thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narconon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononojai.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.